0: Hey, Rockheads, it's time for NDC Oslo again, June 15th through 19th in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will be there, of course, as well as all your favorite speakers. World-class stuff here, folks. NDC-Oslo.com. We'll see you there.
1: .NET Rocks, episode 1139, with guest Colin Gravel. Recorded Friday, April 10th, 2015.
0: Hey, welcome back. It's Carl and Richard. I'm Carl Franklin.
1: Hey, I'm Richard Campbell.
0: We uh, we are recording this before Build, but in reality, we just got back from Build, and man, was that awesome or what? <laughs> <laughs> You're
1: going to play the time shift game now? Because I think it's a week or two after Build. I know. I it's might so be at Ignite fun, now because, you know, Microsoft Conference is back to back. Why not? How did that go? Uh, it was amazing, <laughs> man. You wouldn't believe it. What Good an incredible answer. show.
0: Good answer. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, enough foolishness. Let's start with uh, Better Know Framework, because I got something real for you today. Cool. All right, dude. What do you got? Go to tinyurl.com slash polyretry, and that's two L's, P-O-L-L-Y, retry. Like
1: Polly Wants a Cracker.
0: Like Polly Wants a Cracker, yeah. So, and I can't remember if I've done this on better no framework before i don't think so i don't think but so no yeah so this is an a, a toolkit that i've used in production and it's great so what it does is a le- it's a pcl library first of all so that's great okay that allows developers to express transient exception handling policies such as retry retry forever wait and retry or circuit breaker in a fluent manner so in other words when you handle an exception you can essentially say you know, here's what happens on this exception. I want you to retry forever. This block of code. That's cool. I mean, that's you know, you, I mean, right away you think that's not hard code to write. Why do you need a library for that? Yeah, but it is actually. It is. <laughs> Only if you want it to work right. Yeah, and and it's PCL and it's async and it's wonderful. And here's where I used it. Um, I used it when uploading data and accessing a remote service because. You know, I could have, you know, written uh, uh, some wrapper, handler stuff to do that. But why? Why do that? Right. I mean, this library, just you just drop it in and it just works. And I literally had the whole app wired up every time I went out to do a service call. Uh, you know, there was something like 50 or 60 of them and it literally took me a half an hour. Wow. And it just saved a whole lot of trouble and solved a whole lot of problems.
1: And just worked.
0: Yeah. Love it. Yeah, so that's what I'm talking about today, tinyurl.com slash retry, and this is Michael Wolfenden's poly. Who's talking to us,
1: Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1091, and that is the geek out we did about water power. Oh, yeah. Which seemed to surprise a bunch of folks. You know, I – those topics are always the ones where it, it all came together abruptly when we were able to compare hydroelectric to wave power to tidal power and right. you know look at what's similar and what's different around that. And I got yep. this amazing comment. We get a lot of amazing comments on the Geek Out shows. Yeah. Uh, but Andre Colucci said, uh, hi, guys. Thanks so much for another great Geek Out. They are the best. I really enjoyed the Energy Source series, which I, I like that you think it's a series because that implies more planning than I think I've actually done. Yeah. Uh, because I work for a software company in Brazil that creates software to collect and manage energy data from power meters. Hmm. I found these episodes so cool that every time we hire a new developer, I ask him or her to listen to them so they get a better understanding about where the energy we measure comes from. Hmm. So thanks a lot. Since the subject of this one was water, I would love to see an episode about how we humans are striving to get clean water and how shortages are becoming more and more common over time. Hmm. Sao Paulo, he's in Brazil, is having a really bad time right now, for example. Uh, Apparently i would double check these numbers but it's probably pretty accurate about one percent of the water on earth is fresh water and agriculture takes 70 percent of that and wastes about 60 70 of it as it's well
0: really, really bad isn't it yeah
1: and water pollution is pretty concerning yeah especially agricultural o- overflow is desalination a solution it is but it's got its own set of problems is it too expensive mm-hmm. yes it is but mm-hmm. so is you know dying of of, of dehydration. <laughs> yeah. uh, what's the technology behind it? Can it scale? Yes, okay. I'm, I'm going to have to write a geek out and see what you're doing to me, Andre. What are you doing? <laughs> um, what about populations far from the sea? They will all die. Um, is water, yeah, water is heavy to move? Yes, eight pounds to the gallon. Uh, hmm. What are the technologies for getting and recycling water? Well, one of them is the planet. But okay, yeah.
0: Well, that's true. We have a built-in recycling uh, water recycling system. We've been using it for a long time. That's right. And most, for the
1: most part, the water doesn't go away. We've just been abusing the system fairly badly. Yeah. Um, and he finally he finishes off with a comment. Uh, I just want to point out how important this topic is because beer is ninety percent water. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> please, <laughs> science, help. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, the water in beer matters a lot, actually, when it comes to the, the taste of beer. It's a very big deal. In whiskey, too. Yes. And in the tours of various, uh, breweries and distilleries, you know, they keep samples of their water around to make sure it's exactly right. It's, it's That's a right. key part of it, Ben. Mm. Uh, not to make light of the issues around fresh water, and it's certainly a large one. Andre, uh, thank you so much for your comment. Uh, these are the sorts of things that keep us going on Geek Outs. I'd love to send you a .NET Rocks mug, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps, because we've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8.
0: And that brings us to our guest today, Colin Graville. He works on biology at Microsoft Research. The biological computation team is trying to use programming methods to understand and build biological systems. The aim is to predictably design new functionality out of genes and DNA that can be used in medical treatment and industrial processes. They use familiar software engineering tools like domain-specific languages and reusable components, the same solvers that are used to prove correctness in device drivers. They turn to fragments of DNA to make sure you don't experience bugs where you really don't want them. <laughs> Welcome, Colin. Hi there. The, 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 the biological aspect of computing has been fascinating to me, but it has been so just outside my grasp, uh, understanding wise. I never was all that good in biology. And I mean, I understand looking at the whole system, but you know, on a mechanistic level, it's, it seems very odd to me. But uh, obviously, you guys are figuring out how these things work and the similarities between them, and they're trying to change the world, and it's a wonderful thing.
2: Yeah, so we're trying to not just do big-scale statistics, but just like you say, understand the mechanisms behind these biological systems and understand how they work and how they fail and how we might be able to improve that.
0: So your real your goal is to really improve the world, right? I mean, to improve medical processes and medical treatments. I I've just been you know, and just casual listening to NPR news. I've heard uh, there's been some breakthroughs in in uh, using genetics to find the right drugs for cancer patients and for other patients, just by comparing, you know, looking at their genetic profile.
2: Yeah, So there's some really interesting work on doing like full genome analysis and then understanding how information on drug profiles, they'll work on the individual patient. So the the kind of term for this is like smart or targeted medicine. And there's a lot of potential on that side as well. And that's not what you do, though. No. So we're taking this over route. and It's very much like early stage fundamental research, trying to think about the biological systems themselves as they carry out computation, how they make decisions and how they uh, interact with the world.
0: So give us a a typical example of some of the things that you've been able to
2: accomplish. So we're kind of on the small scale, um, building up, like, it sounds surprising, but building with small molecules like fragments of DNA, uh, being able to design a square root. Now, this might be surprising, like, why might you want a square root? But these are the kind of algorithmic fundamentals that you might want to build into a real system. So, like, taking the cancer example, if you can figure out when, Cells are over proliferating, like growing too strongly, and you can deploy the cancer drugs much more targeted there, you'll be able to have a much more effective treatment and less harm on the patients. It's basically a memory leak, right? Uh, Out of control processes. (laughs) I think of it like a fork bomb. (laughs) Yeah, okay.
0: So when you say create molecules, are you talking about real molecules or program
2: models of molecules? So this is one of the great things. So we have really great collaborators. So we're based in. Cambridge, England, and so an excellent university nearby, and we have some really good collaborations with, like, plant sciences and stem cell institutes. So we can build these models of how these things act. They can go and collect data about it, and we can use those to train progressively more accurate models. And then this helps us with suggesting, well, if you go and do this experiment, we'll have really good data and guidance for you after that. All right. So
0: you're modeling the biological processes and then observing what they do. And so that you could sort of tweak them, right? If you can tweak the model,
2: you might be able to tweak them in reality. Yeah, exactly. So uh, better estimating using like machine learning techniques for the parameters of the biological system and seeing how well our models actually fit in with their real-world behavior.
1: So are we talking about using computing to solve biological problems, or were we talking about using biology to solve computing
2: problems? So... It's kind of, it's a, it's both at the same time. So if we can write programs, so our ideal is we write in a high level language that we want this gene to interact with this gene in a certain way. And we've got maybe some data on how that system behaves in practice. You might be able to say, get a computer to fill in the gaps for you. Say, these are the, these are the interactions you need. This is how you're going to get them and take it to us. robot automation system and out will pop the uh, ideal dna that you could implant into a cell but that's that's lots of steps away from where we are so what we're trying to do is understand what happens what changes could possibly be made and then we could design like a biochemical factory to produce the kind of uh chemical you need out or the medicines you need out right all
1: right and and so, so to my mind it's not like somehow biology is a better computer but rather, you know, biology influencing the way you do computing to help biology further.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, like in an industrial process, I mean, it's all fairly dumb in a sense. The chemists have gone through the process. They know what to add at the right stages. If you could make that system a little bit more intelligent, you could get much better yields, or you might have less waste products that are coming out, or you might be able to clean up dirty waters, to take an example from earlier.
1: And this is not exactly not just about medicine, but actually about dealing with a lot of different biological issues.
0: Yeah. And you said you've been able to create some molecules, so you know that's the something that's where you are now. What exactly do you mean by that?
2: So, if you take a double-stranded DNA, the helix, and you unravel it and you chop it into small sections, what we can do is set up uh, cascades of them gluing back on in like a predetermined, designed ways. So, we've got some online software that you can enter in your like slightly higher level design, and it will tell you where you need to cut the DNA, and then we have the biology experimenters have got techniques they can use to cut in the right locations. And then you put it all in together in a big soup and it'll uh, either detect an edge or or carry out some kind of function or release some molecule that you've tied up in a little bag.
0: That is just such a a mouthful of uh, stuff that I don't understand. I can't even begin to ask questions. I mean, what? (laughs) remember, I'm just a dumb programmer. Nice. Um, what, uh, how does so you're creating these molecules from what is the input data? I guess you said you, you have a high level, uh, input. What does that look like? Do you like swab your cheek and put it in a scanner or something? I mean, how do you get the initial data into the system?
2: So, I mean, and this is, this is blue sky thinking, but what you could do is if you, say, took a biopsy of a cancer, you could find the molecule that, that's the molecule that's misbehaving in, in a person you want to deal with. Um, if you took that as a kind of key and you wrapped up some kind of therapeutic treatment, you, when you then deployed that treatment into the body, it would only open when it has the molecule that fits in. So you've probably seen these videos of mole- yeah. molecular locking. Targeted. And that might be enough.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember seeing a piece, and I think it was out of one of the University of California, maybe it might have even been Stanford, where they were talking about being able to turn off the telomerase regrowth switch on a cancer cell, and the concern, and this is the mechanism that allows them to reproduce indefinitely, and so being able to then identify which kind of cell it is, so that you can ex- essentially inform the switcher only affect this cell type. And then you put it into yep. the body, it finds that cell type, turns off the telomerase regrowth, and basically the cancer dies a normal death. It stops reproducing uncontrollably. Or it does reproduce uncontrollably,
2: it kills itself off effectively. But yeah, so what, what we're hoping to do with this type of approach is we don't have to get it perfect. All we have to do is get it more targeted. Right. So at the moment, it's a very holistic approach. Yeah, the, you have to
1: chemotherapy is you bombing your whole body with poison in the hope that this bad stuff
2: dies first. Exactly, and so th- the reason cancers die quickly is because they reproduce so much; they take on more poison. Right. If yeah. instead we could put the poison closer to the locations, you'd have a much better effect.
1: Yeah, yeah. you'd be more, much more accurate.
2: Uh, I it guess it's very hard when it's
0: metastasized all over your body, though. Yeah, or in your bloodstream.
2: And so then you've got a problem with like multiple different targets, and that's one of the reasons why we don't just want the kind of treatment you'd build up of like one sample, one lock. You want to have something a bit selective about hitting. few different targets and this is why you need computing type things like making decisions about is this the right location is this enough uh, material that you want to deploy something harmful so you were talking about your your blue sky
0: your ultimate goal is to take a biopsy of a cancer cell put it into some kind of scanner or spectroscope or some i don't know how you would get that data that dna data into a computer i don't even know if that's even possible
2: so, yeah, this would be like the long term. So, we, we do it with a collaborator. So, we're working on the fundamentals, the understanding, like the state of the art of what mm-hmm. what might be happening. Mm-hmm. And then we, we, we've we got these great relationships with um, other research departments at universities who are then able to maybe take this further forwards.
0: But that's that's your goal, though, is to take a biopsy and target a therapy to it that is just exactly for that particular
2: problem. We, we we want to enable that. We want to, so other people could do that, and maybe our tools would help in the progress of understanding the what would be effective. Would you call this um, field programming biology?
0: Maybe.
2: Uh, yeah. So we, we we talk about different terms for it, like how you might program cells and program life, Um we sometimes talk about what we're doing as biological computation. Like they're all different takes on the same idea. Interesting. The, I mean, the other side of this
1: is actually doing computation with biology that, 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 you know, we, last month's show was the, talking about the limits of Moore's law and sort of the path we're on in the way we build, uh, silicon based computers is gonna come to an end in another decade or so. Yeah. Then this is a to thinking about and I'm looking at your research in uh, programming DNA circuits just thinking in terms of is this a
2: different way to solve computation problems. So you could use these for computation it's that the diff- uh, and says that it is incredibly distributed computing. Right. So unlike unlike these systems where you have tens of thousands of processors and that's quite tractable you're talking about trillions of processors Yeah. they're all very very slow. So it, you could implement some algorithms on top of these but the question would be how to get them in there and reading the results and would it really be would it practically solve some of the big problems
1: right is um, it a good ag- you know the big problem here is you. It, we, and, if, and I've looked at this as heavily as I'm working on quantum computing as a geek out as well and just looking at you solve the problem many many times and you combine them all to try and figure out what the best answer is because you're going to have errors throughout that you know having yeah. a trillion distributed computation it's
2: the consolidation that's the nightmare yeah, especially when um, 10% of them will fail, 5% of them will lie and tell you the wrong yeah. answer. right. And if you're answer. lucky. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, yeah, I, I don't know It's actually a better way to solve a problem, but it is no. really interesting. For,
2: but what we think of it is is you want to deploy computing into the location. So rather than you having to take samples from an industrial VAT, if you can instead put the logic you want to apply in terms of control inside there, then... It can be much more effective so, mm-hmm. in terms of precise control and removing unwanted byproducts but you, in order to do that you need to have strong predictability about what's going to happen especially in living systems
1: right and and living systems tend not to be predictable i mean that's sort of their nature
2: yeah and adaptive when you've tried to put something in them
1: <laughs> it's just a really interesting way to think and but size-wise I like think one of the things we got into when you start looking at the limits of, of Moore's law was we're getting down to the picometer scale, like the size of individual atoms. Mm. And molecules just aren't that small.
2: Yeah, so it's, it's not many, many years more of Moore's law before we, if you follow the projections, it's going to have to get very very tiny on silicon-based chips. Yes. I mean, there are some alternatives like germanium um, that might be beneficial. But it's, there's not many more spaces left. So we might have to have different approaches. Like you're saying, quantum approaches to Yes, computing.
1: Very different way. And, I, and you just there's always been this interesting dance, especially when you look at like neuron behavior and so forth, to say, is there quantum computation going in there naturally? You know, that maybe there's a biological form of quantum computing as well that we could dance mm. against.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Uh, you mentioned that there are a few sample projects uh on the
2: website that people can download what would we do with those uh, so most of these are quite specialized um we, we make them available so researchers could can use them so there's tools like rain for analyzing stem cell like behavior which we could talk about and then there are dsd and gc which are these t- couple of different levels so either at the dna level how uh, these fragments go together or we think of gc as a bit more like at the lego level that you have uh, standard building blocks like might take something from a jellyfish and these different locations and you glue them together and you put them into a, a full cell
0: oh no it's a Frankenstein game <laughs> it's,
2: it's it's amazing where you can get useful reusable parts for them yeah
0: is it, are, there, are there any gamified things out there that uh, that you can utilize to come up with new molecules or anything
2: else uh, there are a couple of um, I think the University of Washington has uh, some kind of gamified versions of related areas in terms of molecules um, I, it's, it's something we're kind of interested in as well. We, we like to do outreach, like, um, partly why I'm on here as well is that we like to share our research and, and get people engaged in what we're doing. Um, so.
1: Yeah, just lots of our opportunities in and all here, but it's just that, you know, there there is a Frankenstein element to this. You talk about making bit, a molecule, so immediately start thinking, are you
2: making life? I mean, so we're very much targeted on like industrial type applications right. rather than new living things. Um, we're not trying to build like large multicellular organisms or anything like that. It's uh, things that are done conventionally with like chemistry at the moment, but we can do it more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay.
1: I want to move into another pro- project then because these, the, the, all of these are one of those things where like I'm never coming back. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to suck me in. Let's talk a little bit about DSD. I'm, I'm looking at the programming DNA circuits part here. So this is a a domain-specific language for dna programming
2: yeah so uh, d- uh specifying the kind of algorithm and outputs that you want like and and the different hierarchies and it'll generate these fine-grained sections of dna which then glue together in our in these predetermined ways
0: are you saying so, like there's a bunch of check boxes that you want blue eyes and this that and other gen- uh, genetically
2: expressed traits so much different areas so we're, we're taking dna and we're Completely repurposing it. We just want to turn it into a computational substance, mm-hmm. so that we we can do the, this adding and subtracting and recognizing and doing calculations. Uh, we're not trying to put this in uh, living living systems in that way.
1: Okay, so it's just it's understanding the mechanisms because we can do all these other things with them.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it's it's just a very convenient like um, a biochemical fabric we can use to do these uh, algorithms, rather than saying putting it into people or anything like that.
0: It occurs to me as we're talking about this that y- we tend to think of you know genetics and DNA as this stuff that we can just manipulate and throw stuff around, but the reality is it's so effing complex that we're just you guys are just trying to figure out the the building blocks of how to manipulate things.
2: Yeah, so I mean, some some of the people work with they, they talk about it as like the uh, the basic programming language, but for. Uh, biology, like at the very, very start of like predictable, direct control.
0: Well, I would even go so far as, like, you're you're coming up with plus, minus, divide, and subtract and and uh, multiply, right? You're coming up with the building blocks of what you can do with it down the road.
2: Yeah, so uh, a, lot, a lot of the experimental people we work with are kind of constructing those in, in real uh, biology, and then we're building the languages that say, how are you going to put those things together to achieve something useful so in the dna programming side
1: you're not you're just talking about dna as well they're really protein chains right like you're you're not necessarily make working with any given cell just the dna chains themselves
0: that's
2: exactly right yeah
0: okay do you have a dna data type
2: (laughs) how does that work Uh, we have we have all sorts. Um, it's, we more talk in terms of the fragments and how they glue together. So you okay. might have a long chain made of these different regions, and the length of those regions is, is determined by uh, uniqueness in the system. So we want to make sure things go together because unlike electronics where you have wires, then these systems are all together in a big soup. And how do uh, how do stem cells come into your daily ah, so life? This, this is one of the um, other projects that we, we, we work on. Um, so it's, like you were saying, like, this stuff is so complicated and you don't know what's happening then if you compare the things we design they're really simple compared to the things that already exist and in the stem cell project what we're trying to do is understand how cells become more specific cell types so stem cells are the the origin cell that become your heart and liver and lungs and the way they do that is by responding to chemical system a chemical signals in in the body and it'd be really useful to be able to understand how that process happens for uh, differentiation. And the other side of it is, that's really useful is that it would be really great if we could turn adult cells back into this stem cell like way, because then we can do regenerative type medicine.
1: Right. Hmm. Yeah. Now, now we're pressing against this, you know, what we could really do here, this whole idea of fixing genes and, and undoing damage. Like that's, that's, kind of spooky stuff too right not making new things but repairing old things well because
2: there's this history in this so things like bone marrow transplants yep. are fundamentally oh, yeah. making use of stem cell like behavior but you'll tend to get those from a donor so somebody else uh into a patient mm-hmm. there are certain ex- uh, attempts to take people's own um stem cells as well but the one of the really interesting uh clinical trials that happened in japan last year is that they took a, a sample of. Uh, patients, uh, adult differentiated cells, they applied certain uh, series of chemicals to them and restored this um, stem cell-like state. And they used that to grow uh, a new layer of uh, retinal pigment, which they then transplanted onto their eye. Wow. That's crazy. So the amazing thing about this is because it's come from your own cells, you don't have any issues over rejection or intolerance. Plus, you get away from all of the issues that... Of- folks were having with stem cells nearly days we
1: were talking about this is you you would you know uh, create babies just to get stem cells from them and all this other horrible stuff, horrible that, stuff I don't know that yeah. any of it was even real but it, it got people so wound up it just sort of shut down uh, a whole lot of I thought useful research the fact that I could take my cells turn them into stem cells and then apply them where they needed
0: yeah that yeah, was exactly. a huge turning point Richard I remember that there were there were livid people. They were, they were they were coming after him with pitchforks. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Colin, what what got you interested in this? Are you primarily a, a scientist first and a programmer second? Do you do that? Were you a programmer first? I mean, what, what's your background?
2: Uh, so I'm definitely a programmer. So I, I've tended to work on some of these more uh, research type applications. But I spend all, all day with um, writing F Sharp and C Sharp sometimes and TypeScript as well. So to build all the tools that we're kind of talking about. Um, So, I'm mainly here to, like, help the researchers who are doing this kind of amazing work. Richard.
0: Yeah, buddy. Know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. Time to admit I have no freaking idea what Colin does every day at work. I think it's really cool, though. (laughs) It's really cool, but I got nothing. I got no idea. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god, this is so amazing. It's actually time to give away a experienced subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but before I tell you who won, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at DevExpress.com. Awesome, dude! Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Sean Kenny. Hi, congratulations, Sean! Golf yeah. clap for you, sir. Is that the clappers? Did you I find got the-, the clappers? I found <laughs> them. I found them. They were
1: they were hidden away,
0: there, sitting over there. Some not on my desk where I usually throw them. Right. Ah, uh, so Sean Kenny just won a uh, D Experience subscription from Developer Express, a big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to dotnetrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .dotnetrocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. And We'd like to ask our guests, Colin, if you had five thousand dollars to spend on anything in technology
2: today, what would you buy uh, so on the computing side we're quite well equipped like we have these big compute clusters and it's really great we've got Azure as a massive resource nice. I think on, on the on the biology side it's, there's lots of really interesting equipment but it's it's incredibly expensive mm. um, it's like confocal microscopes so you can see what's going on wow. um, what there's an amazing uh, group uh, from Bento Labs, they're building this, like, a uh, uh, lab in a suitcase. And wow. so it has a, a centrifuge in it and gel electrophoresis. So the, these kind of pieces of equipment that you need to do some of the biology experiments. Wow. And they're, they're getting the cost down really effectively. So I'd probably get myself one of those and maybe some uh, GPU cards just so it's convenient on my machine. Wow. And what is this gizmo called? A Bento Labs? But, it's a company called Bento Labs. I don't—they're not in full release yet, but it has a couple of the pieces of equipment. So there's there's a there's a few really interesting um, DIY biology type groups around the world mm-hmm. who are trying to trying to get the cost of this uh, lab equipment that that's usually like a few hundred thousand pounds right. down to down to the level which I I could afford with my shopping.
0: There's a few uh, personal medical lab uh, things that are that plug into your phone. Now, isn't there?
1: Yeah, I got I just got my Scanado.
0: Scanado, the tricorder thing? Yeah, a little
1: tricorder thing plugs into your phone, put it up to your forehead, measures a whole bunch of blood ox, pulse rate. It's really an interesting sensor.
0: Scanado. Is that was that a It was uh, Kickstarter. Kickstarter? Yeah. yeah. And is it available for sale yet or do you have to
1: Still in the kick still in the pre-release mode. So ah, I'm, gotcha. I'm one of the testers. Ah, cool. But so gadgety. It's a, it's, yeah, really interesting, but I'm with you. I'm really fascinated by, can we get lab equipment into a good place? You know, there's a bunch of stuff I'd like to be testing, but most of them, most experiments I want to do involve me having to convert a room, (laughs) And she who must be obeyed is not that keen.
0: (laughs) You want to convert a room for what? (laughs) You want to do where that?
1: And I'm going to need a vent hood and a a sterilizing drain. And. We're going to have to put up these stickers for biological risk.
0: And <laughs> a couple of Tesla coils, and I need it a lot darker in here. Yes.
1: <laughs> There'll be blue flashing lights in here most of the time. It's going to be okay.
0: <laughs> and honey, would you put this big streak in your hair we while we're at it? Um, so let's, let's talk about end goals here. And I know that you know research isn't done in a vacuum for research purposes, although we'd like it to be because we love research. But, um, what are just give us a few stories about um the the kinds of things that you could see happening in the future with the application of technology that comes out of this project
2: i mean so i i I'm thinking it's it's the industrial process that will be deployed first because they're safe contained we're in a factory setting so there's already one or two companies that have had some progress towards this, so there's a company in the u s called amorous, and they painstakingly built a uh, a biological route to producing co- something called artemisin acid, and this is this is a molecule that goes into the treatment of malaria. So this is a system that's up and running, and they they can produce this drug at a, at a cost-effective rate. And I think there's going to be a lot more of these, and we're gonna we're gonna hopefully contribute to reducing the cost of doing these. So rather than doing it from scratch, really. Okay,
0: so so like it, typically, when a pharmaceutical company goes into research phases, they're they're doing what they're they're putting mo- molecular models together and testing on rats and things like that. And uh, what is the difference between you and like a big pharma company? What you guys are doing?
2: They they tend to be using existing known drugs and figuring out the 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 targets, matching the targets molecules onto it. We're a lot more. Uh, amenable to the side where we're. how do you produce the molecules efficiently? How do you build a, a chemical process to do that? So rather than targeting how it's interacting in the body, we're much more focused to building efficient pipelines. But this is all a long time off. Um, we, sure. we, we want to contribute to this type of process but with a very small scales. Do you think that there will be
0: a point at which it will all just become so high level and easy that uh, adapting New, I mean, right, right now you're working on these fundamental things, but you know, adapting to new problems and tackling completely new threats will be f- fast.
2: It'll. I think it will be an incremental process. So as you use tools like ours, it's a little step, but one, one tiny bit of the whole, whole system. And as more and more of these tools exist, and you think of it like the CAD for biology or the Visual Studio for biology, then. It's gonna become cheaper and more cost effective to design and build these things. Do you foresee a time when we're doing this in the home? So there are lots of experiments about like maybe you can design something to grow on a space station, because maybe that's the it's worthwhile in there. I mean in the home it's like a long, long time away. And in terms of uh, the expertise but also the the fabrication, I mean, these things tend to go that way, but that's a very long way. You're basically creating matter out of data, are are or are you not? You might want to specify what what's coming out, but you'd still need some inputs, and we, we can help optimize the process. But we're not just creating pure matter from nothing. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So uh,
0: you wouldn't consider yourself the precursor to the Star Trek replicator, then?
2: Uh, no, it's more of um reorganize the molecules in a, in a defined way.
0: Ah, so you're a transporter.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> no, no, no. Not even close, right? Um, but more efficient factories type settings. That that, that, there that, you that go. worked. Yeah. yeah.
1: But to manufacture what? Medicine?
2: Uh, it's partly all industrial chemicals. There are, there are right. a lot of uh, systems that we've gone through this uh experimentation with chemistry to get the things out that we want. But maybe uh, an intelligent biochemical process could produce those things more efficiently with higher rates and less wastage.
1: Yeah. I mean, we have to sort of set the context around what modern chemical factories currently go through to produce various key compounds that are used in all kinds of things. Like, It's not an obvious geek out, but I've spent some time just studying how paint is made. And yep. just how insanely complex it is to get all of those different colors, mm. and and the the crazy hoops to jump through. The idea that you would build a biological machine that would emit that that a specific compound that you want, so you don't have to do all of the other chemical processes to get to that compound. That's that's really
2: interesting. Like hugely powerful. Yeah, we just need to make the tools work so we can do the design, and then figure out with our our, our collaborators how how you could construct these things, because it's often a challenge. And then we can start getting towards these kind of applications.
1: Yeah. I mean, just take this in a slightly other direction. The other piece I was looking at was a uh, a modified form of algae whose waste byproduct was gasoline.
0: You know, I was just thinking about that, Richard. Yeah. I was thinking about the biological, the eco system or eco-friendly or the green uh, applications.
1: Yeah, but just getting away from refining, which has all of these other implications and problems into what I really want is gas because gas is pretty good. It's useful for a lot of things. How do I make it in a less destructive way?
2: I don't know that you're going that way, Colin. I mean, so one of our collaborators, um, some of the work they were doing was that they had some process for for extracting uh, gas that could be burnt from like waste heaps, right? but they actually wanted to deploy it into a region that was much higher Uh, average temperatures and so the chassis the the bacteria that they were using wouldn't survive in that type of area so it was trying to take the 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 specification of how the process and then just move it into another bacteria that could tolerate those conditions and that's the kind of things which would be great to enable so you've got this standard function that does something and you want to use it somewhere different right and i love that you called a cell a chassis That just makes my day, right? (laughs) Great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that which holds the really important stuff. Um, So uh, another thing that comes to mind is battling viruses because, you know, viruses are just nasty and they they change and they mutate. And uh, while we can do a lot to combat bacteria, we can do less to combat viruses. Is there anything uh, being done by any of your partners in that realm?
2: So we more uh, do work on studying the immune system and trying to understand how it reacts. So we're not really uh, currently targeting like the viruses themselves. We want to just predict and better understand like individual immune systems. And that will help with possible treatments. Sure. But we're not currently aiming at building interventions. I see. But somebody could, right? Yeah, Definitely.
0: And would they start, you know, if somebody was knowledgeable enough, would they start with your, the tools that you guys have online?
2: Um, So, our tools are quite focused on a few areas. Um, right. Th- there might be some use. Um, I, I'm not a, a virologist or, or that kind of area, so. Sure. Different set of problems. Different set.
1: Yeah. And what is your programming language of choice?
2: Are you an F-sharp guy? Yeah, so, almost all of our code, like the core guts is written in F-sharp. Right. Uh, we do. The, the, some of the web UIs we build, we use TypeScript, which is great as well. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we're really pri- privileged here. So, um, Don Syme's in the same building as right. us. So and you can just walk uh, down the hall. If we get problems. And, yeah. So, well, our, some of our code base was actually one of the um, early test cases for the F-sharp compiler oh, nice. to stress test it.
0: Nice.
1: Nice. And I, I was looking at the uh, your research piece on genetic engineering of living
2: cells and uh, requires Civil Life 4. Yeah. Um, so various versions we've got um, four and four, four or five would work. So most of the deployed tools are still Silverlight, right? Because uh, it gives us um, convenient access to like uh, multi-threaded code. We are moving towards HTML5 interfaces, right? So, that, uh, so the Rain tool is built on that, but it, and, it just makes it harder. No, I mean, and I have nothing bad to say about Silverlight. We've got a
1: bunch of tools we use for making podcasts that depend on Silverlight. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, it yeah, works. It works.
0: It's amazing
1: yeah, that, how my, well it works.
0: It works for us, and we don't have to publish it to anybody else, so it's great.
1: Yeah, it solves all the problems. I just uh, love, you know, just when you thought you would only build CRUD apps, here right. they are solving DNA problems and, and we're manipulating living cells with Silverlight. Yep. Just a different way of thinking.
2: And now we're trying to do it with JavaScript as well, which is an even bigger challenge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my.
0: Yeah, first thing we're going to do is we're going to create a number type that works.
2: <laughs> so we're, we're quite fortunate that for our, for the hard parts of our code, we write it in F-Sharp. And there's a tool called WebSharper, which will take your F-Sharp code and turn it into JavaScript. So for the really hard bits, we, we don't have to do it ourselves.
1: Interesting. WebSharper?
2: Oh, yeah, that's right.
1: I'm just, just, I want to look that up because I think I want to include those in the show notes. It looks like an interesting tool.
0: Yeah, we were just talking to Scott Allen about this is the way of the future that, you know, transpilers to JavaScript uh, are, uh, and especially in a vertical like this, right? These guys don't care about JavaScript. They just want to get their code running.
2: Uh, We love it as like a deployment type technology. So we've got this, code that we've written for over a number of years we want to get into people's hands conveniently and this is a nice way to do it and we we also run the same code on like large-scale clusters which is great too so we've got this common definition of the algorithms and we can run these in different locations
0: so obviously this is a big
2: data problem right the data is actually small to medium it's it's really big compute problem for us so in some of our cases we have like built up uh relatively big data sets but nothing compared to like enterprise data what we really have is um, a huge compute problem so to do some of the full-scale runs from the like the papers in stem cells they take uh tens of thousands of compute hours um it's and it's great we can just spin those up on azure and we we can get the answers we need in in great time so using hadoop so mostly it's all compute so we don't okay we don't really need um the aggregation and replication so it's really simple like mpi style type code okay it's just a lot of them yeah a yeah. huge amount
1: <laughs> that, that that tends to be the nature of genetic algorithms right highly parallel many small compute points mm. basically the way same way the cells work
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah i mean so what we've done is we're taking a problem that was basically intractable we're using a, a great piece of technology from microsoft research called z3 which allows you to attack the problem more efficiently but even then it's still a huge problem and so then we have to deploy huge amounts of compute resources against it
1: right and how convenient you have an azure data center just up the road from you it's extremely convenient
2: (laughs) i'm
0: I'm beginning to get it now i'm i'm the big picture is sort of congealing yeah it it is kind of difficult dinner conversation though because there's it's so specialized and complex.
2: That's one of the reasons we really like the tools we build, because they're highly graphical and they help the biologists who also kind of have a hard time with this viewing their world in computational terms. Right. And the tools really help them uh, put it in their own uh, understanding and allow them to make these predictions they find really useful.
1: So when I'm looking at like some of the graphical visualizations from – uh, programming DNA circuits, is, is that just a, a video for an entertainment sake? Or is that actual the, a visualization of the data
2: result? So the uh, DNA you're seeing there, hopefully you can put the video in the show notes as well. Absolutely. Um, that's of a real computation that was designed in DSD. Um, what you're seeing there is how it might look in a, in a fully rendered graphical form right. to get people – give a bit more intuition if you come from a molecular take on it. In the tool themselves, it's really highly schematic, the short lines that they, they pack a lot of information in, but they don't give you an intuition about what's really physically happening. Mm. Right,
1: and there's one of the videos that shows much more of a whiteboardy kind of schematic model. So that's that's actually what the app does. Exactly, yeah. Okay, but then, you, then you've done this lovely three-dimensional rendering of it as well, and I could see where if you were a biologist – You've you've heard of or, you know you're into this idea of the zipping of a DNA helix and rezipping of it, and,
0: and you've actually got, got a visualization of that happening. Yep. Hmm. So here's a, a a lay question that I hope you can answer for me: How much time does it take with uh, uh, current technology to sequence a genome? Like you know if if I take my my genome, you know my personal DNA or whatever it is. And I want to turn that into a set of data.
2: How long does it take to do that? I think it's it's down and quite low. But what but I think what they tend to do is they don't always sequence the whole thing. Uh, they sequence sections of it. If they're doing it for like medical testing, right. if you're looking for like an inherited conditions, um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think well, 23andMe are the, the big ones in this field. I think. Sure. Um, I'm not sure if they have information on it, but the really interesting thing from our perspective is not just the time but the cost but it's actually the cost to sequence has been dropping f- significantly faster than Moore's law hmm. so the ability to uh, sequence the whole genome for, for research purposes is right. down to like hundreds, thousands of dollars down from like the first one when it was done of like billions of dollars Wow! and it, it, the the trend seems to be continuing for a while yet which in this case is really promising in terms of the sequencing for reading your DNA, but also the synthesis and generating it, which is also dropping at a phenomenal rate.
0: So do you foresee a future and, you know, put on your long future goggles here. Do you foresee a future where you walk into your primary care physician, you know, or whatever you s- sequence your DNA? Your DNA doesn't change over your life unless it mutates, right? So maybe you would get a, get a sequencing done every 10 years, something like that. And from that could come a whole bunch of uh, well, a data set that researchers such as yourself or or not yourself but m- you know manufacturers of pharmaceuticals, doctors, whatever could use to target therapies to you
2: yeah definitely there's um there are tools for doing point of care sequencing they 're still comparatively expensive, but this seems very likely. Um, the costs are dropping phenomenally. The question is what you do with it at that point right. so in, in the case of genome data, that is relatively big, and if you aggregate it with other other patients, then that is the kind of thing where you need uh, something like Hadoop and a, and a cloud provider to get that data up to, so you can do the analytics over it. Because uh, just a single person's genome, it, it doesn't give you very much yet. You need to do searching about what that implies. Right.
0: And I know that there are projects out there that are doing this.
2: Yeah, so there's a couple like of much higher scale, like several thousand from either region's. So I think Japan has one ongoing as well. Fantastic. Well, Colin
0: Greville, it's been a pleasure talking to you for this, uh, for this time. And this is fascinating stuff. And I'm, I think I'm just beginning to get it. So this is great. been great for me anyway. Yes, yeah, great for me too. Thanks for inviting me. All right, Colin. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.